A reading from the Gospel of Luke. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Do you remember the prayers you prayed as a child? Did you ever pray for awesome presents? A good grade on a spelling test? A pet? Making a sports team or getting a part in the musical? Did you ever pray that your favorite team would win? Or perhaps even praying that an embarrassing or incriminating transgression might just go unnoticed? Trust me, I have prayed for them all. For many children, and for quite a few adults, the concept of praying to God is like having one big cosmic vending machine. You put in enough quarters, you press the right buttons, and out pops a soda or a bag of chips. Wouldn't that be great? Regardless of whether the concept of a prayer vending machine still exists for you, the prayer life of most adults has had some transformation since they were a child. Most adults no longer pray for a new puppy or to get a perfect score on the math test. Yet many people still view prayer as begging and pleading for a human like God with divine superpowers to fix things for us and then wondering why it doesn't happen. And if nothing happens, what is prayer for anyway? Well, for starters, prayer isn't pleading or bargaining. Prayer is a system of sharing the deepest intentions of our hearts so that we can encounter God, whether that is love, mystery, reality, 
the heart of Jesus, or any other way we can imagine our connection to the source of it all. Prayer is a form of relationship building with God. It's not presenting a list of demands. It's opening our minds and focusing our mind to what is happening in our lives and what we're feeling in our hearts. And listening for that place where our hearts and God's presence somehow align and we feel even a fleeting connection. Prayer is both communicating with God and communing with God. Communication and prayer involves words and feelings to reach beyond yourself. Communing involves dwelling in the source of oneness. You are literally, when you are communing, becoming one with the one. You are becoming present to the powerful, transformative presence of God. We actually, as humans, yearn for that communing, yearn for a place when our feelings are somehow met, that mysterious presence beyond words. And when we yearn, that joins us to the heart of the world, both in brokenness and in beauty. It also moves us to acceptance, peace, and readiness for what that very moment asks of us. And in the moments all of this happens, grace is present. Contemporary writer Anne Lamott says, grace meets you where you are, but does not leave you where it found you. She joins centuries of spiritual teachers who insist that the purpose of prayer is to change us, to change our hearts and minds through our relationship with God, the presence of love that continually brings all things into creation. When we tap into that constant creation and love, we align ourselves with that transformative power, and we can mold and remold our own spirits into action. The late Mother Teresa of Calcutta, now Saint Teresa of Calcutta, is thought of and is indeed acknowledged as a contemporary saint. She kept detailed journals of her work among the poorest of the poor in India. Her writings show her wrestling with persistent doubt, discerning her vocational purpose, and sharing what her prayer life had shown her in a lifetime of spiritual ups and downs. And this is what she concludes about prayer. She said, I used to think that prayer changed things, but now I know I was wrong. Prayer changes us, and we change things. How we pray is as unique as our fingerprints. Prayer can be communal, like we're doing today. It can be reflective. It can involve reciting words we know. And it can involve sitting in silence because we can't find words. Prayer can be an expression of joy or the cry of deepest lament. It can be in sacred spaces or in wide open places. It can be that odd silence you feel when something really good or really bad is happening. It's looking at the stars. It's feeling joy at someone else's joy and sorrow at someone else's sorrow.
Most of the time, it's devoid of any words at all. I've used all these prayers. I know the list is incomplete, and that makes prayer even more mysterious and confusing. Confusing. Yet the confusion about prayer and the mysteries of how we pray is precisely the point. There is so much confusion about what what prayer is and such a broad spectrum on the purpose of prayer that acknowledging the confusion and saying that at some point we're all confused is the best place to start. In the great cathedral in Siena, Italy, like most cathedrals, there are votive candle chapels everywhere. But one in particular stood out for me. In this little devotional altar with hundreds of lit candles, there is a sign with sepia-toned calligraphy above the votives. It humbly perplexes the perplexity of, it humbly addresses the perplexity of prayer in Italian. Luckily, when I encountered the sign for the first time, I asked my friend who I was with, an Italian professor at the College of the Holy Cross, what it meant. This is the translation she gave. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say. I don't have much time. What do I do? This light that I offer is a little of my love, a little of my time, a little of myself. This brilliant light wants to be my prayer that I continue when I leave this place. Isn't that beautiful? I think I could just stop there. But it's prayer. We aren't the only ones confused by prayer. Even Jesus' disciples have to ask Jesus how to pray. Now, these disciples knew how to pray. They were almost all religious Jewish men who knew prayer, scripture, and ritual as part of their lives. But they asked Jesus how to pray how John did. John's ministry and John's prayer were different. They went beyond religious structures and religious words. John's actions and John's prayers were connected to the transformative power of God's presence and love and the reality of God's kingdom and God's presence here and now. It's a kingdom where we didn't need to plead with God to know us. It was a kingdom where we would know God. The Lord's Prayer is a basic connection to God, illuminated by the presence of God both on earth and in heaven. The kingdom of God is not up there and far away or someplace we aspire to get to after we die. The kingdom of God is right here and right now. That's the whole point, on earth as it is in heaven. We are part of both. We often ask God for what we need in prayer. What we individually need is subjective and unique to us. But what we collectively need is that all of our needs, our most basic needs, are met, starting with daily bread. The Lord's Prayer also asks God to forgive us. It strikes me that this is something Jesus included in such a short prayer on instructions for how to pray. And I think the reason why is answered in the next slide line. 
because we also forgive those who have trespassed against us. Until Jesus talks about forgiveness here, the Lord's Prayer has God as the acting agent, both on a big scale, God's kingdom come, and a more personal scale, give us this day our daily bread. Our prayer is that we do something, that we forgive our debtors, as some translations say, or as we forgive our trespasses, as other translations say. The one thing we pray for ourselves is to forgive. That's our contribution to all of us. Forgiveness is an act of self-care that can free us from recalling an experience or encountering a painful emotion. We can stop the pattern and its impact on our minds, our bodies, and our emotional state. We can cease that roller coaster and the harm it does to ourselves. We must remember to include ourselves in this practice to forgive ourselves for things we might consider mistakes or wrong choices. It's often so much more powerful than forgiving others. It's so easy to hold on to our worst decisions, and that's just not helpful. We have to release ourselves from the bondage of our past actions, because it's easily as beneficial as forgiving someone else. Once we forgive ourselves, we can begin anew, without the shadows of previous problems or complications hanging over us. The third point in the Lord's Prayer is more difficult, and it's hard to know what to do with it. What's all this lead us not into temptation stuff, or spare us from the time of trial, depending on what translation you're reading? I often say, what's going on here? It reminds us that life is full of trials and temptations and that God is in them too. Scripture is full of stories from Abraham to Job to Peter who have a spiritual trial they must endure. The listeners knew Scripture, and they knew this was a real risk. The Lord's Prayer isn't just talking to God, though. The words of prayer are God's words to us and our words to God at the same time. It's a loving presence of communication, love, and sharing. If you want an entry point to God, timeless words are a place to start. We can say the ancient words of the Lord's Prayer as millions did before us. Timeless prayers like the Lord's Prayer have connected people who want to pray across the centuries and across cultures. This was emphasized for me on another trip to St. Paul's Cathedral in London for their traditional Evensong prayer service. I went to hear the beautiful choir of men and boys singing in a stunning sacred space, but I left with a new perspective on traditional prayer in churches that has forever stayed with me. The St. Paul's Evensong Bulletin, which I still have, says, Evensong at St. Paul's Cathedral is a tiny fragment of something else. It's part of the worship which is offered to God by people every hour of every day and night in every part of the world. When you come to Evensong at St. Paul's, it's as if you were dropping in on a conversation already in progress, a conversation between God and his people, which began before you were born and will continue long after you die. For a brief moment, you step into the continuous stream of worship and prayer which has been offered here today and which will be offered till the end of time. You are one with those who worship on earth and in heaven. Some of the language you hear may sound old-fashioned, 
but its meaning is not out of date. We're not St. Paul's, but here at Talmadge Hill, we're part of that timeless conversation too. In the coming weeks, we are renewing our focus on prayer as a community. We offer multiple moments for quiet reflection during our services each week. We have a contemplative prayer on Zoom every Thursday at five, and we're assembling a prayer team that will meet for the first time next Sunday, August 28th, following the service. The Women's Circle, which will resume on September 10th, will focus on prayer and praying at both our September and October meetings. All of these offerings, wherever you do them, will strengthen you. So what about all those thoughts and prayers? I did choose the name of the sermon for a reason. It's a controversial statement, for sure, given its overuse at times of national tragedy, such as school shootings and in the comments section of any unsettling social media post. When I hear someone utter thoughts and prayers, I'm often triggered into anger and mentally removed from any thought that is remotely holy to a place of simmering rage, missing the opportunity for me to form my own thoughts and prayers that might be appropriate for me. Its politicization and its overuse has diminished the meaning and power of any thoughts and prayers that I have in my heart and spirit. And when I do this, I allow my anger to disconnect me from the cry of my heart, the cry that says that we are vulnerable, helpless, and we are definitely not in control. This heart space that's a complete void, but that's totally vulnerable, that is the place of thoughts and prayers. It has no words, but it's the place where God enters. On December 14, 2012, I was working on finishing my third semester at Divinity School. I saw a news flash about a school shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. A chill overtook my body, my insides were excavated, and my fingers were so numb I could no longer type. My concentration evaporated as I sat in disbelief. My vulnerability was my prayer. But I did have a few thoughts. My brain had gone from crafting an intellectual and theological argument to thinking about the sweet human spirits that had gone to school that cold December morning, armed with their backpack, a brown bag lunch, and the love of an adult who kissed them goodbye and waved to the school bus. As I drove to pick up my own elementary school-aged children and sat parked in a pickup line at school, I embraced that opportunity to do this very act of school pickup and the pickup line, a place I'd often thought of as a time-sucking chore. When my gaze caught the eyes of the fellow parents in the car lines, and our glances and timid waves conveyed the wordless thoughts and prayers. It connected our hearts in a way that was beyond words. When I saw the teachers nervously placing the children into the appropriate pickup cars with police escorts, I saw their tears, their fears, and their acknowledgement that they were more vulnerable and more responsible than they ever imagined. 
And when I got my own children safely back into my car and home, I remembered what a privilege it was to do this, quote, mundane, quotidian task. Finally, when I saw the interfaith coalition of Newtown clergy cooperate and begin to lead their devastated community through an unthinkable trauma, even as they confronted their own vulnerability and grief, I thought of the impossible places they had to find God and show God in their own suffering. These are thoughts and prayers. Love lives and thrives in the heart. When we pray, we hold and see people with our heart. I want you to imagine right now somebody you're praying for. Put them in your heart space. Maybe it's someone who's ill or going through a hard time. Perhaps it's someone you wronged or someone who wronged you. Do this and you will see that there's calm when you place any of these people in your heart. Even those we need to forgive binds us with empathy, not only to the person we're praying for, but to the timeless and wordless empathy of God. It connects us to love and hope in a way that can't be quantified and or often put into words. And it puts a gaze on whatever we are suffering from in a way that can't be named. It's the heart of what it means to be Christian, too. There is no faith tradition that claims we are spared from suffering. But the Christian faith says that Christ reveals God as a co-suffering love. Suffering with us. Nobody gets out of this world alive, but we're all in it together. While our heart might plead for miracles, we never need to plead for God's compassion. Although I have tried, prayer has never allowed me to ace a math test, manifest material wants, or bring rain to my wilting flowers this hot summer. I have prayed at the bedside of both loved ones and complete strangers. My prayer has had little impact on direct physical healing, but I know that my prayer and my presence has brought love exactly where it was needed. Prayer has allowed me to truly abide in the present and presence of the divine. It forces me to see things I cannot control and let go of them and let go of any intellectual fantasy that somehow I could affect these things in the world. Yet it keeps me on a path of a vital interior journey that when I let go, when I go to the heart space, I can connect to the eternal, I can connect to a peace that passes all understanding, and I can connect to love. And when I do this regularly, I see that everything in the world is just in constant creation, and that God's love and my spirit is constantly unfolding in ways I can't even fathom. 
This week, Frederick Buechner, the writer and spiritual teacher, died at the age of 96. He was one of my favorites, too. David Brooks, the New York Times writer, described him as a man who learned to listen with his life and found his inner depth. I tried to find just one quote on prayer that I would end with. It took me about an hour. <laughs> but the one I picked was this. You will eventually find God whether you want to or not. But if you want to, all you have to do is find some quiet place, be inside yourself, and ask him to let him find you. As far as I know, it's a prayer that has always been answered. Amen. Change how the fire.